Our scripture passage this morning comes from, once again, the Gospel of Luke. We are continuing on in our study of this Gospel. Uh, at this point in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. I encourage you to turn to it in uh, your Bibles and follow along with me as I read and as I preach. At this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has indeed already entered into the holy city of Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday. Uh, And he began his teaching in the temple there. And uh, this is where we are at at this point in Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is indeed the word of God. Now over the last several weeks in Luke's gospel, As Jesus has been in Jerusalem during the last week of his earthly ministry, we've seen various groups of religious leaders of Israel coming to him and attempting to entrap him and snare him. Their desire is to be able to seize Jesus Jesus and put him to death as soon as they can. The only thing at this point preventing them is that they fear the crowds. They rightly discern that the crowds love Jesus, at least at this point they do, and are in his camp. And as we heard several weeks ago, they were actually afraid that the crowds, if they laid a hand on Jesus, the crowds would rise up and stone them to death right there in the temple. So three weeks ago, we heard how an inquisition was sent from the Sanhedrin, that is the high Jewish court, to challenge the authority of Jesus. And after Jesus rises to that occasion and he shames that inquisition before the crowds, the religious leaders of Israel retreat, regroup, and then they send, as we heard last week, a group of spies to Jesus who come to him and they puff him up with flattery and they attempt to get Jesus to say something which the Roman Empire would hear and would interpret as words of insurrection against Rome. Well, that mission fails as well, and these spies are shamed and silenced by Jesus. So now, our text today, it is the uh, the Sadducees' turn to come to Jesus and attempt to entrap him, to discredit him in front of the crowds so that the authorities could arrest Jesus without fear of the mob. Now, it's important we know who the Sadducees are. 
Who were these men? What did they believe? The Sadducees were members of the Sanhedrin, just like the Pharisees and the scribes. <clears throat> and they were what we might call today strict biblicists. So maybe you've met Christians like that who, you know, they might walk into our church and see that we confess the Apostles' Creed every week or that we uh, subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and a strict biblicist would say something that's not in the Bible. They would say, well, no creed but the Bible. No creed but Christ, right? That's a strict biblicist. That's like a step beyond someone who believes that the Bible alone is our authority for faith and life. They would be someone who claims that they would not use any man-made creed or confession to express what they believe. This is sort of like who the Sadducees were. Uh, they were what we call today strict biblicists. They believed that specifically the books of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, which were written by Moses, were the only authoritative scripture over God's people. Uh, so think about that. We were talking about this last night in family worship, and I said it's interesting. The problem that the Pharisees had is that they kept adding to the Word of God with their human traditions. One of the problems the Sadducees have is that they removed large portions of the Old Testament. Only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, did they believe was authoritative scripture. So they rejected the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They believed that if it wasn't found in the Torah, then it wasn't real, it wasn't God's law, it wasn't authoritative. And strangely enough, they were what we might call naturalists. They rejected the existence of the supernatural. Apart from the Lord God, apart from Yahweh, they believed there was no supernatural reality to the created order. There were no demons, there were no angels, no human soul, no judgment after death. Only God is spiritual and exists apart from the physical world. This is who the Sadducees were. This is what they believed. And so now that we can uh, understand that, now that we know who they are, we can look at this question that they bring before Jesus in verses 28 through 33. They say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, understand three things about this question. First, they did not believe in the resurrection of the body, as we just heard, the resurrection. So this is one of those questions that they have conjured up in their minds ahead of time. In other words, this is not a spontaneous question. This was a question they probably used in their debates with the Pharisees over the reality of the resurrection of the dead. They thought by bringing this question to uh, Jesus or to the Pharisees in past debates, they really had the, uh, the, the question that would stump anyone who believed in the resurrection. So this is a premeditated question. It, it wasn't like they just came up to Jesus and on the fly came up with this. Secondly, we should note that the resurrection they are talking about here is not the forthcoming resurrection of Jesus. There was probably only one person on the entire planet that time in that space who had that 
specific resurrection on his mind, and that was Jesus Christ himself. The resurrection they're talking about here is the same resurrection that we confess every week to believe when we say in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection being discussed here is the resurrection of our physical bodies, our resurrection, which will happen at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns, fully consummates his kingdom. He will raise our bodies to new glorified renewed, rather, glorified resurrection bodies. Sometimes I think we forget this truth, beloved, that the Bible does speak about our own bodily resurrection. That our great hope is not just that when we die, our souls will be glorified and at rest in the presence of Jesus Christ, but also, at the second coming, Christ will resurrect our physical bodies They will be glorified and reunited with our glorified souls, and we will enjoy eternity in a renewed new creation in real, physical resurrection bodies. That is the resurrection that the Sadducees rejected. They did not believe in an everlasting soul, so the idea that there would even be a that there would one day be a resurrection of the body and the soul would be reunited to that body, was preposterous to them. They really had no hope for anything after the grave. Thirdly, understand the scenario they present to Jesus. It is a scenario that is based upon the law of God. It's based upon a law given in the book of Deuteronomy called Leveret Marriage. This was a command that stated that if a man should die and he had no children... His brother should marry his wife and perform the duties of the husband, primarily procreation, and their children would bear the name of the deceased brother. Now that sounds very strange to us today. But understand, during the days of tribal Israel, this was a God-given grace to first make sure that widows were cared for, And secondly, make sure the households and the lineages of the families of Israel were preserved. And so this is what the Sadducees based this scenario off of. And as I said, this is probably a question they they had posed many times in the past to the Pharisees. Uh, And the question basically is, Jesus, if a woman marries seven times because her husbands keep on dying, uh, which man will be her husband in the resurrection? And I really believe that the Sadducees, they thought they were being quite clever. They really thought that this scenario would trip up Jesus. Of course it doesn't. Jesus is easily capable at answering this question. And we will look at his answer, his reply right now. There are two elements to the response of Christ here. Two elements in how he answers the Sadducees. And the first element deals with the nature of relationships in the resurrection, in the age of the resurrection, in the new creation. The second element deals with the scriptural case for the resurrection of the body. These are the two elements to his response. So let's look at the relational element of the resurrection first. He says that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So Jesus says, listen, marriage is for this age. 
It is a gift to the human race right now in this created order. But another age is coming, an eternal age, the age of the fully consummated kingdom of God in the new creation. And for the ones who inherit that kingdom, the ones who turn to Christ, receive Him by faith, Jesus says they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so this is part of his response. Beloved, I do need us to understand something here. If you are grieving the loss of a loved one, especially if you are grieving the loss of a spouse, do not be discouraged by what Jesus says about marriage in the resurrection. Jesus here, he is not giving us a full commentary on marriage or our relationships in the new creation. He is responding to a preposterous scenario posed to him, and he is showing how ridiculous the question that the Sadducees asked truly is. We need to, and we all can, have assurance as Christians that whatever our relationships will be like in the next stage, it is going to be infinitely better than what they are like here. Just as the new creation itself will be infinitely better than the current state of this creation, our relationships with God and with one another are going to be infinitely better. We will have far more intimacy between one another, including our spouses, than we could ever hope for here in this life. Because our relationships will finally be free from sin and its perversion. And so, beloved, whatever Jesus says here about the state of marriage and the life to come, we can know this. We will not be disappointed in the resurrection. We will love one another in the new creation on a level that we never thought possible in this life. And we can take comfort in that truth and not be discouraged by what Jesus says. But with that said, again, the point Jesus is making is that marriage is for this age, not for the age to come. And he continues and says that in the resurrection, uh, death will be no more. Look at verse 36. His point there is that having tasted death and being resurrected from the dead, we will not die again in the resurrection. This speaks to the everlasting nature of our relationships in the new creation. They will not be cut short as they are in this age by death. We will have eternal fellowship with God and with one another. This is why Jesus says we will be equal to the angels. We don't become angels, but we will be equal to the angels. The angels are immortal beings. They do not die. In that regard, in the resurrection, we will be like, we will be equal to the angels. Just as angels never die, we too in our resurrected, glorified bodies will never die again. Our relationships, the point again, our relationships will not be broken by death. That is the nature of our relationships in the resurrection. Everlasting, unhindered by sin, perfect, true, deep, intimate fellowship with each other and with God himself. So that's the first element of Christ's response to the Sadducees. He says, you, you don't even understand the nature of the world to come. So don't, don't, don't come with me with this preposterous situation. You're only making yourself look like an ignorant fool. That's really what he's saying to them. And the second element of his response deals with the scriptures themselves. And, and notice, 
Jesus is so clever here because he doesn't, there's any number of passages from the Old Testament that Jesus could go to to support the idea of a resurrection of the body. Where does he go? He goes to the Torah. He goes to the book of Exodus, the exact same scriptures that Jesus, or that the Sadducees themselves claimed was the word of God. It's very smart apologetics, you see. He takes what the Sadducees already affirmed as being true and he uses it to expose their rejection of the very scriptures they claimed to uphold. And by doing that, Jesus basically tells them that to deny the resurrection is to deny God himself. It's a denial of the scriptures. It's a denial of the very essence of God's covenant promises to his people. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus shows them how, although they were claiming to uphold the Torah, they were actually denying it. And Jesus says that even Moses, in the passage about the bush, meaning Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, even Moses, in the passage about the bush, testifies to the resurrection by calling the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Exodus chapter 3. Moses records the words of God himself when he declares that he, he says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus chapter 3, God says, I am their God, not I was their God. That's Christ's point here. So Jesus is saying, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if there isn't even an eternal life spiritually after death, then on what grounds does the Lord call himself the God of these men who have already died? Is he the God of those who no longer exist? That's basically what he's saying there. Is he the God of the dead? Or is he the God of the living? The early church theologian Origen said that it would have been utterly ridiculous even for the Sadducees to state that God is, present tense, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if these men were no longer living, even in the spiritual sense. If they were no longer living, then God would simply be, Origen said, nothing more than the God of dust, the God of decomposing bodies. That's not who God is. That's not who Moses said God was in the Torah. That's not who God himself said he was when he declared himself, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus shows the Sadducees directly from the Torah how God himself bore testimony to the reality of the resurrection. But there's more to it than this. The Sadducees, Jesus is saying, you're denying the very scriptures you claim to uphold. He's saying more because by denying the resurrection of the dead, not only are the Sadducees denying the fact that God is, present tense, the God of the patriarchs of Israel, the Sadducees are also denying the very essence of the covenant that God has made with his people. This would have been a huge deal to the Sadducees because as Jews, their entire identity was wrapped up in being God's covenant people. And so think about this. If, if, uh, if God is the God of those who no longer exist, as the Sadducees basically believed, then it raises the question, 
On what grounds do God's people, whether it is today, us, his covenant people expressed through the church, or whether it was those hearing Jesus uh, in this exchange, on what grounds do we have any hope in the covenant promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are no longer living, they don't exist anymore and will not experience an eternal resurrection of the body, then what good are the covenant promises that God gave them? That he would be their God and they would be his people. That he would make his dwelling place among his people forever in a land of promise. God himself said that those covenant promises were everlasting. The covenant itself is an everlasting covenant. And so the question is, does everlasting just mean until their bodies died? As Charles Spurgeon said, God does not make an everlasting covenant with insects which only last an hour. Everlasting means everlasting, and therefore the people with whom God makes a covenant with must be an everlasting people. It was indeed a grievous sin for the Sadducees, men who claimed to believe the very testimony of Scripture itself, at least part of Scripture itself, it was a grievous sin for them to deny the resurrection of the body. By doing so, they were proving they did not truly believe the Word of God. They did not truly believe in God as He, in His own words, declared Himself to be when He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not truly believe the promises of God when He said, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And thus they were calling God a liar. And beyond that, they ultimately did not believe in the power of God. They did not truly believe that God could and that God would, through His Messiah, bring about a new, restored, created order. They ultimately were basically saying, by rejecting the resurrection, God can't and won't conquer death. That's why Mark, in his account of this event, Mark chapter 12, he records Jesus as saying to the Sadducees at the end of his argument, he says to them, you are quite wrong. When Jesus said that, it wasn't just him saying, yeah, you don't get it. You're just, you're wrong. You know, it wasn't like that. He is saying more than that. He is saying that their souls are damned because they rejected the truth of God's word. They rejected his own revelation about himself. They rejected the very nature of his covenant promises and called God a liar and they rejected God's power. When Jesus says you are quite wrong, it is a damning indictment on their souls, beloved. And we have to recognize that if we today reject the reality of the resurrection of the dead, then we too are under the same indictment from Jesus Christ. We have to understand whether you are a Christian or not, you will one day experience a resurrection of the body. Revelation chapter 20 is very clear about this. It speaks about the resurrection of all the dead. But we need to also recognize this resurrection does not mean the same thing for all people. For the one who denies the resurrection and thus denies God, denies His power, denies His Word, <laughs> denies His Messiah Jesus Christ, for the non-Christian who has not returned to Christ in repentance and faith, they will be resurrected on the last day. 
Their souls will be reunited with eternal resurrection bodies, but it will not be a resurrection to everlasting life in the new creation. Instead, it will be a resurrection to everlasting death. Now that might sound like an oxymoron. How can you be raised to everlasting death? It is a paradox. Beloved, it is a paradox, but just because it's a paradox doesn't mean it's not true. It's absolutely true. For the one who is outside of Jesus Christ, their bodily resurrection from the dead will be an eternity of judgment as they sit, body and soul, for eternity under the just wrath and holy justice of God for their sin. In that sense, the resurrection they experience is a resurrection to everlasting death. But that is a death. An everlasting death which can be avoided. Not through human effort, not through good works, but rather by hearing, receiving, and believing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an everlasting death that can be avoided and quite frankly conquered by repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus Christ the Messiah by faith alone. And I urge you to do that this morning, beloved. If you have not yet done this, repent, place your hope, your trust, your faith in Christ alone. You don't know when your earthly life will end. You don't know when Christ will return. You don't know when the resurrection is going to happen, but it is going to happen. And if you wish to escape a resurrection to everlasting death, you must receive the Messiah by faith. If you do that, you will not experience eternal death, but rather eternal life. And for the Christian beloved, the resurrection of the body has been, and it is now, the great and ultimate hope for us. This is why all of our ancient creeds, the oldest confessions of faith that Christians all over the world use to testify to our faith, this is why they all state that we believe in the resurrection. The Nicene Nicene Creed says we look for the resurrection of the dead the life of the world to come. As we heard in our Sunday school class this morning, 50 generations, over 50 generations of Christians have used the words of the Nicene Creed to affirm our faith. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Apostles' Creed, which many of us know well, declares that we believe, we hope, we anticipate the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Beloved, this is our hope as the people of God. And it is a sure hope. It is a certain hope. And we know that this is a sure and certain hope because of what we will celebrate next Sunday. And hopefully, by the way, we celebrate it every Sunday. The entire reason why Christians gather every Sunday on the Lord's Day is to mark the reality that Christ has risen But we know that our resurrection is certain because Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. The Lord God does have the power through his Messiah to bring about a new, restored, created order. And we know it to be true because our Messiah conquered death itself in his resurrection. And remember this, beloved, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was not merely a ghost or a disembodied spirit. He rose in the flesh. 
The same flesh which was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the same flesh which wore the crown of thorns, the same flesh that was laid into the tomb. It was a glorified resurrection body, but it was the same body. It was a true resurrection. Paul declares to us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Christ, Paul says, is the first fruits of all who have died in Christ. That means that if we have come and died in Christ, meaning we've denied ourselves and we've received Jesus by faith and we are united to Christ and we've, been, we've died and been buried with Christ and resurrected, Paul says that if we've come and denied ourselves and received Jesus by faith, one day we will experience the very same resurrection that Jesus has already accomplished. He is the first fruits This has been the hope of God's people, beloved, ever since the earliest pages of the Scriptures. It has been the great hope of God's people ever since we rebelled against Him in Genesis chapter 3 and brought about a curse upon ourselves and all of His good creation. The wonderful hope that God will indeed, through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, undo all the effects of the curse, including death itself. This is why the Apostle Paul declares. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Beloved, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.